Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. There's two places where you'll find the Ten Commandments, or rather, if we were to be more honest with our language about it, um, they're not really all commandments, even. In Hebrew, they would just be called the Ten Words, the Decalogue. Log meaning logos, meaning word, and so it's Ten Words from God. And so for this series, I've decided to entitle it simply, God's words for God's people, okay? Because we're going to be reading words given to us by God, and these words have a specific purpose, then and now. But let me start off. I'm going to be reading uh, from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. And God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God or a zealous God, a God that is full of zeal for you. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. And that is Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. The other place where we find the Ten Commandments is in Deuteronomy chapter 5. We'll save that one for next week. But to get us started, I want to give you an idea of what's happening in this passage here. Here's what's going on. God has just rescued his people from Egypt. And you know that story. We've talked about that story. This is when God does a mighty work. He levels an army. He spreads an ocean. He sends down plagues. And he brings a group of people out of a land for himself. Now, Deuteronomy, we're going to read, has any other God done this? 
taken a, a poor and oppressed and frankly sad group of people and said, these ones are mine and those powerful ones I'm going to get rid of. I'm going to push off to the side. In which in Deuteronomy we read, no, no other God has done this. And this is what the Lord is saying. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's this great reminder. And here's the rest of the story too that's taking place right before this. Um, there have been some laws given out and, and Moses is leading the people. He's trying to do a good work at that. He's overworked. There need to be some other leadership put into place and God directs him how to do that. Moses does it. And then at a certain point, uh, God descends upon this mountain called Sinai. And it, it's honestly a horrific sight. We'll, we'll look into it a little bit more next week. But there's thunder, there's lightning, there seems to be, I don't know, like a tornado or uh, just a strong wind of some nature. There's an earthquake. It's a terrifying sight. And Moses has already been told, hey, tell everyone down there at the foot of the mountain, don't come close to it. Don't even let the animals come close to it. And everyone's like, you don't have to convince us of this, okay? This is horrifying. And so Moses tells everyone, and God tells him to come up the mountain to have a word with him. And Moses starts going up, and then God says, hey, Moses, you know what? Just go ahead and, and turn around. I want you to go back down, and I want you to tell everyone not to come up the mountain. And Moses says, okay, I already did that, and I'm pretty sure no one else is going to come up this mountain, right? Uh, but he turns around, he does it anyway, he gets his exercise for the day, uh, twice over, and, uh, and then he goes back up, and then God has these words to give to Moses. Uh, elsewhere, we see that these words are actually written by the finger of God. They're the very words of God written by the finger of God in two tables, it says in the text, or two stone tablets. Um, and... This is where we're at. And these are the words that God is giving to his people. The, uh, if we look around in our world today, it's pretty easy for us to see that these ten words are not followed, right? We don't look around and we don't say to ourselves, yes, no, everyone is following the law of God. We say, oh my goodness, this world is falling apart and no one is following these words from God, these laws given to us by God. Uh, a couple years back, now this was in the States, so you can totally disassociate yourselves from it. Uh, no, don't, don't, because this is the world we live in. Uh, there was a, uh, what do you call it? An online poll where you could go on and they were going to write a new list of Ten Commandments to try to replace the Ten Commandments that we find in Scripture. And um, these ones are uh, not pretty good, okay? So this is uh, about 2,800 people submitted this. Then there were 13 judges who got together and looked at all the laws and said, here's the overlap, here's what we're seeing. These should be our new Ten laws, except for when they got done putting them together, they realized, well, we don't really want to command anyone to do anything, so we're going to call these the non-commandment commandments, okay? <laughs> so these are the, you don't have to do them, but you should do them, commandments. 
And here's just a couple of them. Oh, they all came up at once. Okay. Be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Now, these all sound pretty reasonable, okay? And the reason why they sound reasonable to your ears is because you and I want to be our own gods, right? And we talked about this last week. What did Adam and Eve do? They said, no, no, no. God, we know that you're all powerful, but we would like to be you in your place. So we're going to take all that knowledge now. Everything that you are keeping from us, we want that for ourselves. You, you're not really giving us all the free choice that we want. We want all the free choice. All the free will that we can get. We want to be you in your place, God. And really, these are what these commandments are saying. Be open-minded and be willing to alter your beliefs with new evidence. Strive to understand what is most likely true, not to believe what you wish to be true. The scientific method is the most reliable way of understanding the natural world. Every person has the right to control his or her or whatever pronoun you want to put, their body. Number five, God is not necessary to be a good person or to live a full and meaningful life. Be mindful of the consequences of all your actions and recognize that you must take responsibility for them. Number seven, treat others as you would want them to treat you. Oh wait, that actually sounds familiar, doesn't it? And can reasonably expect them to want to be treated. Think about their perspective. Number eight, we have the responsibility to consider others, including future generations. There is no run one right way to live. Number nine. Number ten, leave the world a better place than you found it. Overall, I actually kind of like those. Don't you? Uh, because what this says is live and let live. This says I'm going to live the way that I want to live and everyone else is free to live the way that they want to live as well. For us as Christians, this if we were to subscribe to these, it would sound something like this. I know that Jesus is my Savior, and everyone else can do as they please. Well, that's probably the least loving thing that we could do. Um, that's like finding out that someone has... Uh, you, you look at someone, and you know that they're sick. You've seen the sickness before, and yet you refuse to tell them about it because you'd rather not upset them right? Oh, if they find out they're dying, shame, their life's going to be ruined. No, we wouldn't do that, would we? You monsters? No, I know. We wouldn't do that, would we? We'd say, you're sick. You need to go to the doctor. Let me drive you there. That's what we should say. But instead, this uh, list of Ten Commandments is saying, live and let live. Be free to be who you are. One of the reasons why a list like this would be popular or thought of or be desired or anything like this, I think there was a whole book written about that list. Um, one of the reasons why is because don't you find that the law of God is just so stuffy, right? We hear those words from God and we feel a little bit trapped, a little bit hemmed in by them. We, we feel like maybe we're being a little bit restricted. Like maybe 
there's a little bit more freedom out there that we could get for ourselves. Nowadays, um, there's, well, we've talked about this before. Martin Luther, who, sorry, I brought up his name too many times last week, but I love this illustration that he uses. He talks about two ditches. You remember this from, I don't know, last year sometime? And he talks about how sometimes theology and talk about God is like a drunk man trying to get on a horse. <laughs> okay? And, and we, we decide, okay, we're going to get on this horse. And we kick our leg up and we think, yes, we've made it as we fall off to the other side, right? And then we try again and we fall off in the other ditch and we keep doing this. And when we look at the Ten Commandments or these ten words, God's words to God's people, there, there's two ditches that we could fall in. And one of those ditches is to say, okay, I don't care what else Scripture has to say about these ten words. I'm going to follow these ten words and these ten words alone to the T. And by that, I know that I am safe and secure and that God looks upon me kindly. Now, that's one ditch that we could fall into. That ditch is called legalism. It's thinking that you can save yourself. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about how we don't save ourselves. That God does that, and he does that through Jesus on the cross. The other ditch that we could fall into, which is very popular right now, is to say these ten words, these are old words. And, and now that we're in the New Testament, because we're a New Testament church, we have new words. We don't have to follow these old stuffy words that um, when people hear them, they honestly just want to run screaming away from church. Ah, get me out of here. And, and so, and what we do when we fall into that ditch is we say, you know, Jesus says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. So let's look to Jesus' words and just see that his words are easy, that the laws that he gives to us, no, those are, we can easily do those things. The, one of the dangers with falling into that ditch is that you're probably not really reading or understanding any of Jesus' words, okay? So let me just give you a couple of examples of this. The first of which is to say, um, I've heard it said like this, and we'll talk about this in coming weeks as well, that we're not under the law of that Old Testament anymore. We're under a new law, and that new law is the law of love. And so whatever we deem as loving, whatever we understand to be loving towards our neighbor, because that's how the law is summarized. It's even summarized like that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, right following the Ten Commandments, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so many good Christians with good intent say, yes, the new law is better. We're going to do what Jesus said on, on the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Because Jesus is telling us, do this, do this, do this. Clearly, we should be able to do it. But what we don't understand is that those things are no more attainable than these old laws are either. In fact, let me turn over to Matthew chapter 5 real quick, just so we can get a flavor of what it is that Jesus is teaching us here. You have read that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell, to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's just stop there because we go on talking about lust and divorce and making promises that you don't keep and loving your enemies. Christian, are you keeping that law? Or let's say, okay, well, that's kind of Old Testamenty too. So let's move on to what Paul has to say to us. He tells us to love one another. In fact, Paul gives us over 42 ways if we were to read through all of his epistles that just say, do this with one another. Be patient with one another. Long-suffering. Uh, be, be caring, loving. Uh, don't hold on, hold on to hostility with one another. Christian, do you do that? And can you do all 42 of those one another's to even the person sitting next to you who you may live with? let alone the people that you come to church with and sit with on a Sunday. I'm going to say to you, no, you don't. I'm going to say to you, no, you can't. So to throw out the law of God in the past, you might as well just throw it all out because you're not going to live up to it. You're not going to be able to attain it. Which is why in Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 17, Jesus started off that list of law with this statement. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a little scratch or dot on the page will pass from the law until it is accomplished. See, what we have here is Jesus saying, He is what the end of the law was. Paul says that Christ is the end of the law. Jesus says that He came to fulfill the law in your place. What does this mean? He came to live the life that you couldn't. And what does Paul mean? That just because Jesus came that the law has ended? Well, that's, that's a little part of it. But the bigger part of it is to say that Jesus was the goal of the law. That you were running a race and this law was running alongside of you. And the whole time you were reading this law and it was condemning you. And then finally you saw Jesus. And the law said, that's the goal. That's what you were supposed to end at. Christ. You need to see your need for salvation and salvation from the law as well. And so throughout... Scripture, we see primarily three ways that the law of God functions. And now, maybe you've heard these things before. I've probably taught them before. And it's easy for us to just call them the three uses of the law. But one problem is that when we start saying uses of something, it sounds like, okay, 
I am to open up God's word, and this is how I'm going to use God's law today. Okay, that's kind of true, but it's also true that when I'm talking about the uses of God's law, it's how God uses the law in your life. It's how the word of God is supposed to function and influence you. And how that happens by way of the Holy Spirit while you're reading it, while you're studying it. And the first of those ways is that the law is to reflect or to mirror something in us. Um, in Romans chapter 13, we read this. For rulers are... Uh, sorry, I'm going to read from Romans chapter 3 first. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his, in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Or as Paul says again in Romans chapter 4, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Or chapter 5, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. I could keep going on then, um, but we'll stop there for now. Except for to say that the law in the text is meant to reflect who we are. It's supposed to be a mirror that we hold up to ourselves and that we're honestly able to see who we are. And it's more like one of those little makeup mirrors. I don't know if you've seen one of these things, but they're horrifying. Uh, when we were traveling recently, we were in a hotel and there was one with a light on it even. And when you turn on the bathroom light, the light on the little mirror popped on and it was like a magnifying glass being put up to your face. And all these little signs of stress and age and sun on my face were revealed to me. And that's what the law of God is like. That when we read it and we read, you shall do this, we think to ourselves, yes, that means I can. And then we don't. And all of a sudden we realize, I can't. I'm supposed to, and I can't. What am I supposed to do with this? And that's one use of the law then, that it mirrors or reflects who we are and how we live and how we are supposed to live. Another function of the law in our lives is restraint. Um, In Romans chapter 13, it says this, For rulers are not a terror to good comfort, but to bad. Good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Uh, what do we have here? Uh, okay, this is a, in conversation in Romans about the role of the government or what the government should be doing. And the government is to punish wrongdoing when it sees it. Um, now, the interesting thing about governmental laws, about the laws around us, is that these laws don't always work to our benefit. Or maybe we have a bunch of them and there's nobody there to enforce them. Know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Do we experience this on a daily basis? Where whole communities are left to themselves after 5 p.m. and no law comes to bear on them. 
for people's good. And so the law of God is supposed to be a picture of how we should be expecting the laws of this world to work. Um, And I'll say it like this. If you were to think about the Ten Commandments and you were to think about every house that is maybe five houses in every direction from you, and if each and every one of those neighbors started to follow all ten of the commandments all of the time, what would your neighborhood look like? Now, maybe some of you never meet your neighbors or don't have any neighbors, and you say, well, it wouldn't change that much, okay? Or, or what you should then do is say, okay, those people that are around me in my house, if we followed all of these words all of the time, how would our life change? Would it change for the better? Surely it would. In fact, if no one were to murder, or as Jesus would say, even be angry with one another, of course your neighborhood and your neighbors would be better. Your street would be better, right? And so the law of God is there to curb the evil in the world. And then lastly, the law of God is there to guide and to reveal to us what God's will is. Um. As we go throughout these Ten Commandments, we're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs as well. Because the book of Proverbs shows to us sort of the day-in and day-out wisdom of following God's law. And in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 2-7, to we read this, "...to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth." Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The law is there to guide us, to be a teacher to us. Um, We read elsewhere, well actually we read it a couple weeks ago, in Galatians, that the law was to be a schoolmaster to us until Christ came. It was supposed to help us guide our lives until Christ came. In this sense, the law is is a guide to us into the good works that God has planned for us. It's a guide to us to see how God desires His people to live and how we should be modeling our lives. Now the beauty is, though, that the Christian is free from the law as a system of salvation. And yet we are also free to follow the law of Christ as a rule for our lives. So that we could see in us the change that God desires to have in us. Okay. I'm a little bit wordy this morning. Forgive me for that. Um, I'm going to go back to Exodus chapter 20. Um, And we're just going to spend two more, three more minutes here in the Word. The reason why I asked who had memorized the Ten Commandments is because in different church traditions, the commandments are numbered differently. So this makes things difficult. If you grew up in the Catholic Church or in a Lutheran church, um, then you're looking at 
commandments, let me get this right now, I think it's commandments one and two, as you probably know them, are number one. Or if you're looking at um, the Jewish tradition, they're actually adding in verse number two of Exodus as its own command and putting the rest beneath it. It doesn't matter how you number them, and that's why we're just going to call them God's words to God's people in this series. Um, because I also uh, find a lot of wisdom in, that, in the Jewish re- rendering of this. Because think about this for, an in- for instance. When we go through Paul's letters, almost always, Paul, Peter, everyone writing epistles, reminds us first of all of what Christ has done for you. And then the author moves on to say, now this is how you should live, right? And this is exactly how the Ten Commandments are set up, actually. So again, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. These ten words start off with good news. To say, I am your God who rescued you. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 5, when we, when we get to that set of the Ten Commandments, it's going to say, essentially, I'm continuing to rescue you. And then Christ is going to say to us, I am the Lord your God who has rescued you. In verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. I don't know what your translation says. I'm just going to try to give you a slightly more literal translation of those words is that you shall have no other gods in front of my face, okay? <laughs> All right? Which is interesting, because if we were to go over to Job chapter 34, we would read this. For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all of his steps. Or Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You, have, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind me and before me and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? How can I run away from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. That one goes on simply to say, God sees you and he knows you. And so in that very first commandment, which we're going to be digging into more last week, when it says you shall have no other gods while I'm looking at you, (laughs) really God's saying, I'm looking at you all of the time. Don't have any other gods. One theologian when describing what this first commandment means, describes it as such. A God is anything that you fear, love, and place all of your trust in. Now for each of us, 
we've probably been taught this Ten Commandment before, we've read it before, and we say to ourselves, okay, so don't have any other gods before me. That means that as long as I'm putting God in the first place, and I'm in second place, and uh, my ancestors are in third place, and uh, the accomplishments of my ancestors in the past are in fourth place, and this little belief that I have is in fifth place, as long as God's in first place, everything's good. To which God says, no, have no other gods in front of me. I'm looking. I see you. I formed you. I know you. I hold on to you. I keep you safe. Place all of your fear, your love, and your trust in me. Don't fiddle around with those other things. And we'll dig into more of that next week. So as we close out here this morning, thank you for your patience in this introduction. I would ask you, what do you fear, love, and trust most? You know, usually I have a big idea, and I didn't write it up there this week, but if I had a big idea for this week, um, we could say it like this. That each and every one of these words, even though it's okay to describe it as a commandment, we could also just as easily call it a promise. Because we already read, Christ is the fulfillment of this law. Christ is the goal of what the law was pointing us towards. So we can say, not only we should have no other gods, but in Christ, we have no other gods. Because of Christ and what He did for us on the cross, we have no need to try to put these other things in competition with the author and perfecter of our faith. There is no need to place anything in second, third, fourth, fifth place to try to appease God because Christ has done it all for you. He has perfectly loved the Lord our God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And he has perfectly loved his neighbor in our place. He has taken all of our sin upon himself. He has saved us from ourselves, from sin, from death, the devil, and hell. And he's even saved us from the wall. Thanks for listening, and remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.